You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this day and, uh, and this church, this place, um, your body of Christ here, and ask that you would bless us as we as we gather today and as we worship and study a little, Lord, I pray that you'd be with me as I teach. Um, anything that I say that's wrong, may we instantly forget it. Anything that I say that's right, may uh, we remember it and may it take root and inform our scripture study, Lord. Uh, so now be with us and uh, bless us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're continuing our discussion of um, how do we know what we know in historical geography? And today we'll start looking at um, uh, a few more pictures of the area. Um, but I had a really great question before class. So um, last week we looked at the tools of historical geography and we looked first at texts, which included the Bible. And then I talked about some uh, various inscriptions from different places, Eusebius's Onomasticon, um, a uh, a third uh, in the th a source from the 300s AD, um, and uh, I was just reminded also one that I didn't list, and there are lots that I didn't list, but another one that's been very important actually are uh, the writings of the historian Josephus. Uh, Josephus, as I'm sure many of you know, um, was Jewish. Uh, he was part of the Jewish. Um, he was a leader in the Jewish army in the uprising. He was taken hostage. Uh, he was captured. Um, anyway, became um, significant, uh, a significant Jewish apologist uh, in Rome. Um, the, his his uh, he has a mixed reputation for people uh, for the Jews. Um, I, many consider him a turncoat. Um, but um, his writings, which were extensive, uh, are also an important source of how we know things. And then we looked at toponymy, how, do, the, the, how place names uh, maintain over time. Um, and then that helps us actually really put um, definitive points on the map, which is really interesting. So I talked about, for example, the towns of like Mikmash, which then in Arabic later times comes to sound like Mukhmas. But you hear that sound, or um, like Dan, uh, which means uh, the judge or judgment in in Arabic was called Tel Al Qadi, which means mound of the judge. So the idea is maintained. So today we look at our next tool, which is archaeology. Um, and archaeology, um, did any of you study archaeology in college or are you just amateur? Like, I know it's great, isn't it? it we, don't we all really want to be Indiana Jones? I know I do. Um, and wonderfully, last week, I uh, got to hear about one of the early digs at a really um, important and contested site uh, in Israel, the ancient city of Ai, or Ai, you may have heard it, um, Ai, one of the cities destroyed right after Joshua comes in to the Holy Land. Um, some early uh, digs there. Um, scholars disagree vehemently over that spot, but it's so much fun to dig in the dirt. Um, and um, I'm blessed to have, have been on several digs during my time. So archaeology, though, really, 
um, is the study of material culture and what we can learn from finding that. It originally started pretty much as just treasure hunting. Um, but fortunately, um, in, in more recent decades, um, they stopped looking at just the royal palaces and let's see if we can find gold to really saying, how did ordinary people live? And this is really important. And for example, one of the um, many of the finds in Israel are not the sort of royal uh, finds, but they are everyday finds, which tell us so many important things. So for example, they find areas uh, where parts of um, the remnants of homes and they'll find hundreds of loom weights where the women would have been weaving. And why is this important? Well, it helps us, for example, when we come to Proverbs 31, have an understanding of what that um, woman uh, of Proverbs 31, what her life would have actually been like. They find old cooking stoves, which help us know um, how the ordinary people who lived in biblical times, what their lives were actually like. And I love that because it helps inform us so much about what we read. Um, and so archaeology is, is that study of material culture with help, which helps us know that. But I will tell you, um, on the digs that I've participated in, one of the things that always makes me laugh is like, okay, I can tell that those stones might have put there, been put there by a person, but you are, you are telling me absolutely that that is a cultic site. And I actually had one archeologist say to me, you know, the fact is if we're not sure what it is, we just say it was a cultic site. Um, and so this reminds me of a great quote from the fabulous scholar, Anson Rainey. Archeology span is the science of digging a square hole and the art of spinning a yarn about what you find. <laughs> so there is a little bit of that, um, but it's still really fun. And so, um, um, there's lots of great information. I don't have time to talk about all of it, but um, really archeology span in the Holy Land started in the 1860s um, in, in a really more scientific way with a guy by the name of Flinders Petrie, who's actually called the father of Egyptology. He was a slightly odd person um, from Scotland who got, uh, who educated himself, decided to go to Egypt, began digging, fell in love. He taught himself to read hieroglyphs at eight years old. But he's also known for doing his digs when it was hot in, in the nude, um, which was always a bit shocking for the Egyptians, as you might imagine. But um, uh, during one of his down periods when he was trying to raise money for his Egyptian digs, he was hired by uh, an organization out of uh, England to do some digs in the Holy Land. They were looking for biblical lachish. Um, and so um, he went there, did some interesting digs there before going back to Egypt. But what Flinders Petrie gave us and why he matters so much um, is that he is the first to identify the importance of tells. Um, a tell is a artificial mound, and we're looking at here an undug tell um, moving uh, in the Shvelah of Israel, which is the area basically between the high hills of Jerusalem and the coast. 
Um, and there's these, there are these tells all over that there's not enough money to dig everything. So this is literally in the middle of a huge farmer's field. Um, we got permission to go and kick around, which is super fun because oftentimes just surface finds are really interesting. Um, so this is a great undug tell. So who knows what could be there? Don't you want to go and dig? I do. Um, anyway, but so he said tells are man-made. And what we see here is just as place names track over time, people tend to settle in the same places over and over. So tells are essentially layers of civilization. And so you see here in this diagram that the lowest levels are the earliest periods of dating. And this gives us relative dating. So we know that the top layer is more recent historically than the bottom layers. So we can kind of get a sense of that relative dating. But Flinders Petrie, also because of his work in Egypt, um, and because of the fact that the Egyptians were so keen on um, writing things down in monumental stele, um, they, he was able to come up with a specific dating for pottery. And then he comes to Israel and he's like, huh, the same pottery that I'm seeing from this period in Egypt, I'm finding here in the Holy Land. And so that led to also some specific dating for events which continues to be important. And of course, in more modern history, we have other um, tools that allow us to date things specifically. And again, this is so important because it has allowed scholars to date finds to the actual biblical chronology. So for example, in uh, Jerusalem, in the old city of David, they found a whole cache of tiny little seals um, and uh, they were able to um, date all of those seals using all of these different technologies and determine that that area where they had found had been prior to the Babylonian conquest in 586 had been the storeroom for all of the records of the kingdom of Judah. So that's where all the official documents were kept. And then we know from reading the Bible and from reading extra biblical texts that the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and what did they do to it in 586? They burned it to the ground. But the cylinder seals made from clay basically just got fired by the, by the heat. So the documents were destroyed, but we have all of these cylinder seals, including some that were the name of a person mentioned uh, in Second Kings, uh, um, a royal official. How cool is that? All of this dating and archaeology helps us have confidence in what we read in the Bible. And so um, here we see um, this example of the stratigraphy of tells and how we have that dating. This is a shot of Tel Megiddo. Um, the great city of Megiddo, it contains 25 layers, so 25 successive cities built in this one spot. And we're going to talk about part of the reason why those spots keep being those spots in a few minutes. Um, but Tel Megiddo is super interesting because 
the lowest levels are, are literally the earliest layers of, of human beings in the world. And then the top layers date to the biblical era. With them on top of that, we see some a little bit of Byzantine and then a little bit of um, uh, you know, more recent history. But the University of Chicago began this dig in the 1920s. And they cut this huge slice out of this cake that you can see from on top and from below that's so interesting. And when you look at the side cut, you can literally see all the different layers, sometimes with big patches of ash, dark ash, where a city had been burned. And then they built again on it later. So um, for how many of you have read the book, The Source by James Mishner? All right, well, that book, is based on the dig at Tel Megiddo. And for those of you that have gone with me before or will be going with me next year, that's one of my suggested readings before you go. For those of you going with the two trips with the Advent, I would also suggest reading the source. It's very interesting about the layer cake of history. And so when we talk about historical periods in Israel, this is essentially the dating that you're gonna see um, and uh, interestingly, um, and it always makes me laugh. So if you, when you go on an archeological dig in Israel, it really makes you a bit of a history snob because when I was digging at, uh, at Tel, which is one of the two possible candidates for biblical Bethsaida, we were digging at a lower bronze level. So this is pre-Israel. And um, I found a number of things which were really cool. Um, and I, you know, at one point I'm holding in my hand a piece of worked flint that they would have used for cutting in the late bronze period. So, um, so excuse me, middle bronze period. So we're talking 4,000 years old. I'm, I'm holding this piece of human history that's 4,000 years old or a, a piece of broken pot that was all burned on the inside and you could still see where the food had stuck to it. It's amazing. So, um, but they don't, nothing is considered antiquity in Israel if it's later than Napoleon's invasion in 1798. So it makes you a real snob. I'm like, oh, that's only 300 years old plebs. So anyway, so, <laughs> um, but some of the, some of the really interesting stuff that we see um, is this is um, a dig that exposed, um, this is in the Sumerian Hills. So north of Jerusalem, um, these four room houses that were characteristic of the Israelites moving into the land. So they're actually able to trace the movement and the settlement of the Israelites into the Holy Land because of this four-room house architecture that seems to be based on, on really what we still see in cultural anthropology, Bedouin tents. So how do you know if, an is, if the Israelites were there? You look for these four-room houses. If you see a four-room house, you get a sense of how they use their space. And so we know, for example, in area two there, that that's where 
at night or in the winter, they would bring the animals in to protect them from predators and also to help heat the house. Why do we care? Well, Mary in the stable wasn't really a stable. She was back in with the animals so that she and the baby would be warm on a cold night. It's so instructive. This helps change how we understand um, so much because the Bible didn't take place in England, no matter what I grew up thinking. Um, <laughs> um, or again, I mentioned last time, the oil lamps, these lamps that will fit in the palm of your hand, one of them from the Iron Age. So this is, this is, um, this is the time of, let's say, you know, Samuel and David. Um, tiny little lamp. This is what they had to light their houses. Or later, this Herodian lamp, you can see how it's changed. The form has changed. It's a little more fancy now, um, but again, found in Jerusalem. Uh, and so again, when we read that Psalm 119, your, your word is a light to my path and a lamp to my feet. That's what they're talking about. This little lamp lit with olive oil and a linen wick that would fit in the palm of your hand. And suddenly Psalm 119 takes on a whole nother level of meaning. Or this is one of my all time favorite archeological finds. This was actually found in Jordan, uh, in the, the city of Ammon. Uh, Ammon and um, Israel were actually growing as kingdoms at approximately the same time. This statue is found intact. Wouldn't that have been awesome? I would, I would love to find something like this. Um, now, it was colored um, when it was uh, first done. Um, and so there are still tiny fragments of paint that showed us what color this garment, the garments were. And the eyes, we think, would have been some sort of a precious stone like turquoise or something. Um, and the inscription on it reads, Yarak Azar, son of Zakur, son of Sanepu. We know from an other, an Assyrian inscription that dates to 733, that Sanepu of the house of Ammon paid tribute to the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III. Why does all of this matter? Well, because guess what's happening in 732? The Assyrians are invading Ammon, Judah, Israel. They were all being made servant states. Um, so we have all of this extra um, confirmation. So what do we wonder what the kings of Israel and Judah looked like? They looked like this. Um, notice he even has the curls on the side of his head here. The Ammonites and Israelites were kind of cousins. So um, I think this is so fascinating that it allows us to really put flesh and clothing on people of the ancient world. The other thing that helps us do that is cultural anthropology. Um, one of the things um, that is interesting about this point in history is that um, the Bedouin and some of the poor in places like 
uh, Egypt, Jordan, and southern Israel, um, their culture has changed more in the last 40 years than it had in the previous 2000. So a lot of interesting cultural anthropology from the late 1700s into the mid 1900s, really their lives had not changed in all of that time. So provided a great snapshot in what was life like in biblical Israel. Um, and nowadays, um, unfortunately, the Bedouin, a little like colonial Williamsburg, uh, the Bedouin uh, are now setting up little sort of um, experience life as an ancient Bedouin examples. Um, and this is taken in one in Jordan. Um, and so we see this woman cooking um, uh, flatbread uh, in the way that her family had done for thousands of years. Um, and so uh, we learn a lot from the cultural anthropology that was being done from the 1700s to mid 1900s um, that really help inform us on all of that. And again, just help us put some flesh on the bones of things that we read. And also, I think we tend to read the Bible through our own historical lens, our moment in time. Um, so, for example, I, I taught Ruth a couple of weeks ago to, um, uh, to the women's ministry. And one of the ladies came up to me afterward and was just saying, you know, I've read that book a thousand times, but I'd never thought actually about what it was like for Ruth and Naomi to walk from the plateau of Moab in modern day Jordan, all the way across, up through Jericho, swimming across the river Jordan. Um, these two women by themselves and then up the huge steep uh, hill to Jerusalem and then down to Bethlehem, these two women by themselves. You know, because when we read that, what do we tend to automatically think? Well, they hopped in their car or they maybe jumped on a horse, but we don't actually think about what a treacherous journey that was and how the fact that only God could have brought them safely through that. And so when we understand this, it makes God's promises in the Bible, I think, so much deeper and richer. So, um, so cultural anthropology, and now we get to physical geography, and this is probably, I love this bit too. I love maps, I love digging in the dirt. Um, you can take the girl out of the Marine Corps, but you can't take the Marine Corps out of the girl. So there we go. Um, so physical geography, geology, climate, hydrography, um, food resources, settlement patterns, travel routes, strategic considerations, how all of this shapes what God, um, what God does in Israel. Why did he pick Israel? Well, physical geography helps us answer a lot of that in really dramatic ways. Now, the picture you see there is the official logo for the Palestine Exploration Fund. Um, this was society was set up in England in 1865, um, and it was set up with a mixture of, uh, of Church of England people and then also science, scientists and scholars. Remember, at this period in history, um, this is when the Royal Geographical Society is blowing and going in England. They're all over. The English are all over exploring things and climbing up mountains and dying in the Amazon. And, uh, and so one of those places that they were interested in also was Israel. And in part because they wanted to put a map with the Bible. 
And, um, and so they got, uh, they sent little groups of people over, many of whom were actually with the Royal Corps of Engineers. So these are military men who go over. Some of them are trained a little bit in rudimentary archeological stuff. Most of them weren't, they made it up as they went, but they were all curious and brave. So some of the things that this group did was they excavated Jerusalem in Jerusalem. Somewhat sneakily, they got into, uh, onto the Temple Mount and then into the quote Solomon's stables under the Temple Mount, largely by lying, which created some huge political problems. Um, but they also um, uh, did uh, really the first significant mapping of the Holy Land um, in what's known as the Survey of Western Palestine. They mapped what had essentially been a blank spot on the map from Tyre and Dan up north all the way down to Beersheba in biblical Negev. Other groups from the PEF mapped the Sinai and later they would map Jordan, modern day Jordan. Um, it was about 6,000 square miles um, and they did a map one inch to one mile wound up being on 26 sheet map sheets that measured when all put together 13 by seven feet. Huge map. Um, and um, in, in addition to mapping, which by the way, a team of five people, and they did this all in a little over two years. They um, built on Robinson's work of place names. We talked about that last week. They recorded another 9,000 place names. They made geographical, excuse me, geological observations. They mapped all the springs, rivers, lakes, rainfall amounts. Um, they detailed, they drew archeological surface finds. They took photographs, some of the early photographs. Um, for those of you that are great historians, the man that was their photographer was Kitchener, um, if you're up on your British history. Um, they took agricultural notes and anthropological notes and ultimately published this huge map um, and seven volumes of flora, fauna, and all of the rest of it. And so significant, significant. And why is it so significant? Well, because this is what um, the maps prior to their work looked like. And Wally, thank you so much for sharing this. Wally Evans emailed me last week because he is also a cartophile. Um, and he shared with me a map in his collection um, done by um, the uh, Dutch cartographer, Abraham Ortelius, uh, who lived in the 1500s. This uh, map was part of, of Ortelius's great work, the Teatrum Orbis Terrarum, which was first published in 1600, um, published again in a pocket version in 1575 and was so popular, all of these maps that were part of this book, that it remained in print until 1697. Um, this one is from a 1600 printing. Um, and uh, if, if you see the map, let's see, do, does my little things show up? It does. Okay, so this is Israel right here. And it, first of all, you'll notice that it's a little off as far as the way it sits, 
but it's not terrible. But you see some of the names, um, mostly again drawn from biblical, the biblical record. Um, and But you see a few curious things, like the Dead Sea is a really unusual shape. Um, so we've got this weird little bootleg thing going here. That's not what the Dead Sea has ever looked like, um, <laughs> according to Josephus and other sources. And then you've also got, this is a pretty significant cut here into the Sea of Galilee, which is further south than it actually is. Um, there is uh, There are significant streams, but they don't work quite that way. But um, this, is, this is not a bad stab at it in 1600. Um, but it's, uh, it took the PEF to actually give us this. And this is just part of one of their sheets, but you can see the detailed notes. And um, for those of you that have ever done any mapping, you know that it's pretty easy today with lasers and stuff. But these five guys did this with two iron poles with an iron chain between them. Um, and it's really incredible fighting malaria and bandits and almost causing a huge international incident and all of this stuff. So now we, we have all of this information. Um, and we have a modern map. Now, you're probably thinking, she messed up the slide. <laughs> I did not. So how many of you know, what do you do when you first pull out a map? What's the first thing that you do? You orient your map. What's the term orient mean? East. Literally, orient means east. And in the ancient world, before they knew about magnetic north, you literally oriented yourself towards the rising sun in the east. And so one of the things that, um, <laughs> that I learned when I was studying um, it in Jerusalem and that now I encourage people to do, and my office at home is covered with maps of Israel and they are all oriented this way because it's a weird little thing and I know it seems silly and you've kind of got to read like this, but here's the thing. For the Israelite, for the biblical world, their life was lived facing east. And this is so biblical. Which direction is Jesus going to come when he comes again in glory? He's not coming from the north. He's coming from the east. Um, and so they really, when you read the Bible and you look at biblical maps, think oriented east to the rising sun and the coming of the Lord. Um, it's a small thing, but it, to me, it matters. And you will see, the more you do that, you will understand the land in a different way. I know that sounds silly, but you really will. And um, it's just interesting how it shapes how we read because we start to think like the Israelites did, orienting east, not north. Um, it doesn't help you with compasses, but um, it does help you think about things differently. Okay, so, um, so now I want to start talking about this little land called Israel. Um, today, at its widest, it's, um, it's about 85 miles wide at its widest point. In biblical times, at the height of the kingdom, it was, uh, it, you know, it, was, it was a little wider because it encompassed parts of Jordan. 
Um, in biblical periods, um, it's about, in biblical times, it was about 110 miles long. So from Dan in the north to Beersheba in, in the south in biblical Negev, today it's about 290 miles because it goes from Dan in the north uh, in the Latani uh, Gulf uh, uh, all, the, all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba uh, in Elat and a little further than that. So now it's about 290 miles long. But in biblical times, you know, you're, you're talking about 85 miles wide and about 110 miles long. It's tiny. It's about the size of New Jersey, but it has the diversity, the biological um, and topographical diversity of California. Why Israel? Hmm. Because of this, in part. This tiny land is almost a microcosm of the entire world in this one little tiny place, which I think is not an accident. So up north, you're, uh, you're in the north there looking at Mount Hermon, the Lebanon and anti-Lebanon ranges up there where there's snow sometimes all year long. And um, that's your north, high mountains and snow. You can go skiing in Israel. Most people don't. When you think of Israel, mostly we think of kind of dry, right? Well, you can go skiing in Israel, um, up there on one of the slopes uh, in the, the anti-Lebanon range. All of that snow coming down as it runs off, what does that mean? Springs and water, yeah, great rivers. So that's one of the main sources of water. But then you go down south, 110 miles south of there, you've got the Negev. A little further than that, you've got what's known as Maktesh Ramon, which is one of the largest craters in the world. Great hiking for those of you that love to hike the desert. Maktesh Ramon, a fun area. But you've got, you've got full-on desert here in the south, just 110 miles. You go east and you've got the Jordan Rift so with the Sea of Galilee. Um, freshwater in the north, ending, of course, in the Dead Sea, the most saline body of water in the world, in the south. And down the middle, this huge river, which is pretty depleted today, but in um, biblical times was a huge river um, where there were um, alligators and uh, you have, you literally, we read about them in the Bible, but we don't think about them. There were um, uh, African lions um, we have, we found uh, in archaeological digs, big um, lion and leopard traps that they used to catch the lions and leopards in this area. So you've got that good water and then on, and then out towards the desert beyond that. And on the uh, west, you've got the Mediterranean and this picture of Caesarea Maritima. Uh, this is the port where Paul um, uh, would have sailed from when he was on his way to trial in Rome. Uh, one of the first man-made ports in the world under Herod the Great. Um, and uh, really an interesting, interesting site. Um, and it's really from this area that a lot of Christianity spread. Um, as the gospel um, came there, took hold, and then people went out from there. And all of this diversity created in part by the geology 
of the range. You've got several tectonic plates meeting here uh, that create all sorts of interesting stuff. So literally, you have in this tiny little thing, you have all of this stuff happening, you know, which is why Jews call Israel the center of the world, because it's sort of unusual how all of this stuff meets here. I don't think it's an accident. Um, and all of the weather patterns that take place and all of the different soils that are happening here that allow for uh, settlements. So in parts of the country, you've got Cenomanian limestone, which is great building blocks for houses. And as it erodes, it creates really good soil. Um, this is uh, in the Judean Hills, just to the west of Jerusalem. Beautiful area. There's a great park there um, where everybody in Jerusalem goes on Saturday for picnics and to hike and to get out of Jerusalem. It's beautiful. And all of these cultivated fields, terraced. And this terracing goes back to the Israelite period. It's amazing. Literally, um, this land becomes a place of, uh, as God promised, land flowing with milk and honey because of the cultivation. Um, this is a, a, another uh, hillside um, in the Judean hills. Look at all that, the terracing there. It's amazing. Then you go outside to the, to the east, outside of Jerusalem, and you've got this other type of limestone that creates basically the wilderness. This is, this is part of the Psalm 23 landscape. Um, <laughs> you know, you want somebody who's going to bring you safely through that because not much grows and it's easy to get lost because it all looks grimly the same. Then further south, uh, further to the west, going down towards the water, you've got the Eocene limestone, which gives you these broad valleys. By the way, this valley, um, there's a hill up in, uh, uh, there's a town up in the hills as you look across. Um, that's where um, uh, Samson came from. Again, a place that we could put on the map because of archaeology and toponymy. So this, this is the area of Samson and his Philistine bride, Delilah. Oh, and the, 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 that Eocene is nice because it allows for carving of caves. Uh, and this, um, this is at um, Beit Guvrin, um, where later generations dug these huge caves. And this is where some evidence that early Christians in the land gathered for worship. Um, in these dovecotes. Oh. Also travel along the edges of these valleys. And what's so interesting is, again, humans are, we're kind of predictable, but the roads that they would have, that David would have walked on to get to his battle with Goliath, um, that, that the kings would have come down they are still the same places. So under modern roads are, guess what? The ancient roads from Byzantine period, from Roman before them, from Persian before them, from Israelite before them, the same places. We go up into the Northeast and we see all of this basalt. Who, any geologists, where do we get basalt? volcanic activity. 
volcanic activity in the anti-Lebanon range up in that area. As basalt degrades and erodes, what does it give? Great soil. This is in the area that we know biblically as Bashan. And you may remember the, uh, the great prophetic quote, oh, you cows, uh, you fat cows of Bashan. Literally true because Bashan was the breadbasket of ancient Israel. The soil was so good because of the basalt breaking down from early volcanic activity, because all those plates meet there that you have here. This is one of the only places in Israel that you can really grow great wheat crops because the soil's good and it gets so much water from that Hermon range. In other places, again, you're looking at the mountains there. That looks more like Montana than Israel, but it's Israel. This though, um, this is the less lovely part. This is, um, this is outside of Bethlehem. It's a lot rockier, not a lot. You've got your sheep and goats there though. They're making it. But again, this I think is this wonderful reminder that God said, um, to the people in Deuteronomy, you know, it's not going to be like <laughs> Egypt, um, that uh, you will depend on me to give you rain from heaven. Uh, and in fact, um, there was a, they found an Egyptian slur about the people of Israel, um, that uh, they were dependent on rain. And that was like, oh, those poor, poor peasants are dependent on rain. But for the people of Israel, it was a sign of God's blessing. So there's nothing sad about that at all. Um, and uh, this, let's see, this of course is Egypt. See all that great easy irrigation. They used to, um, it says that uh, in the Bible, it says that, the, that it's not gonna be like Egypt where you can water your fields by kicking your heel. And so literally um, in Egypt, they would just kick that little bit of dike down with the heel of their foot to water the next field. It's not how it works in Israel. So again, another piece of the Bible that makes more sense when we understand this. Um, and so we see that the rain impacts the crops and then God gave the calendar around that because for the people of Israel, the fact that crops grew was a sign of God's blessing. And for them, all of it was tied together. So the giving of the covenant uh, at Mount Sinai becomes connected with the end of the wheat harvest at Shavuot. Um, uh, Passover is at the time of the barley harvest. So God is literally giving them food so that they can celebrate the feasts. I love how God brings all of this together with such beauty and wonder. Um, nothing is outside of his provenance and there is mist in the hills and surprisingly snow in Jerusalem. And, oh, and then you've got rivers up in the north. This is one of the um, sources of the, of the Sea of Galilee up near Tel Dan. And you've got springs that because of the way the, the, the limestone works, springs will come down and then run into cracks and fissures in the mountains and pop up in other places. 
How wonderful is that to find a source of good water? And wells. And what's wonderful is there's a well um, that I love to visit in the hills um, above, north of Jerusalem in what was the tribal area of Benjamin. They still, the shepherds still use that well to water their flocks. That well dates back to the Old Testament, that they have literally been watering their flocks at that same well for 3,000 years. Isn't that amazing? It just awes me what God does. And then this is a cistern. Cistern technology comes in in Iron Age II period. Um, in places they rely on cisterns. What's the problem with cisterns? And you can think biblically. They talk a lot about cisterns, right? You are a broken cistern that holds no water. Why is that a problem? Well, practically it's a problem if your cistern's broken and you have no water, you're probably gonna die of thirst. Um, spiritually, why is it a problem to be considered a broken cistern? Because the water of life runs right out. Again, why are they using that image? Because this was their life. It's all connected so beautifully. Um, and then these women, these two Bedouin women, this is down near Beersheba. Um, these two women out with their, their little flock of sheep and goats. Um, what I love about the modern Bedouin is that they still look like it could be super ancient until they whip out their cell phones, <laughs> which always sort of spoils the photo. So. <laughs> Um, but, um, and then this looking outside, um, this is looking over, I'm, I'm facing west, looking out towards the Dead Sea. Um, this is springtime because there's a little green on those Eocene hills um, and the rainbow. I, I just, the sign of God's blessing and his promise uh, to his people. Uh, and this is the Midbar, the wilderness, or sometimes translated desert, which seems like nothing can grow. And yet God blesses his people, and there's grass there for flocks, and there is the rainbow, the promise of his love and his blessing for his people. So next week, we're going to talk about the seven species and, uh, and see that these are actual real things. And... Um, we're going to talk more about settlement considerations and how all of this informs. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.